to ask the Lord to help us as we prepare to listen to his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as we are about to read from your word, which is in itself a treasure and a gift beyond all valuing, beyond all understanding, because it proclaims to us a message of salvation from sin, and we thank you that we may also ask for the help of the Holy Spirit and ask with certainty, with expectation, that because the Lord Jesus Christ has told us that we should ask and we should seek and we should knock, because the one who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door is opened. And he spoke then particularly about praying for the help of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we may expect that as we listen to your word read to us and proclaimed to us, we will receive the help of the Holy Spirit to be attentive, and not only with our minds but with our hearts. And our hearts and our lives will be open to receive the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to give himself for our salvation. So, Father, we pray, help us to worship you now by listening to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn for our scripture reading to the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 2. Start our reading at verse 39. We'll read through to verse 52. The text is the verses 41 through 52. Luke 2, starting at verse 39 to 52. The text, the verses 41 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So far the reading of God's word. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we're studying a passage of Scripture, it's usually helpful, usually important for us to ask ourselves, try to at least answer this question, why is this passage in the Bible, you might say, why is this story or this teaching included in the Bible? There's really a limited amount of space in the Bible when it comes down to it, and the Spirit must have been selective about what He included. And so it's always important to have some understanding, some awareness of why He would have included a certain teaching or event in the record of Scripture. Sometimes it's not a hard question to answer. We see that there's a particular teaching of the apostles. He's addressing maybe a sin in the congregation or some kind of false teaching. You look in the Old Testament, the prophets are addressing some particular sin or proclaiming some particular promise to Israel. But other times, it's really not that easy to figure it out. And our text for this morning is one of those passages. Why is this story included in the Bible? Now, when we come to the story, when we read the story, it might not be a question that right away occurs to us. Because we feel probably like we already know why it's here. It's here to tell us about something that Jesus did, something that happened to Jesus when he was a boy, when he was growing up. And we kind of like to have this story here in the Gospel of Luke, because there are not many stories about those years of the Lord Jesus when he was growing older. And this story gives us a glimpse into Jesus' childhood. In fact, we'd like it if there were a lot more of these kinds of stories, because we're kind of curious. What was that like? What was it like for Jesus? What was it like for his family as he was growing up? Well, some people uh, suggest, some commentators suggest, the reason Luke tells this story is because that's something that the Greeks would do. When they were uh, recording the lives of some Greek hero, they would open that story by telling some, some record made up, obviously, of some supernatural thing, some amazing thing that their hero had done while he or she was just a little child. In the early centuries of the church, there were people who seemed to have done the same sort of thing. They made up stories about things that they claimed Jesus had done while he was a boy. And so you might find stories somewhere about Jesus creating sparrows out of the dust on a Sabbath. Jesus bringing a dead boy to life. On the other hand, Jesus cursing a boy so that he withered and died and Jesus uh, striking a boy dead because he had run into him. But this story that Luke tells us isn't about Jesus performing any miracles, nothing to show that he has any divine power. One of the commentators says this story about the 12-year-old Jesus is simple enough to tell, but hard to understand what it really means. In other words, why do we need to know this about Jesus? Why do we need to know that this happened to Jesus, that Jesus did this when he was 12 years old? What is uh, the message here for our comfort? And we really find the answer in uh, the way the Lord Jesus spoke to his mother when she rebuked him for having stayed behind in Jerusalem 
And when the family went home to Nazareth without telling his parents, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I'm going to preach God's word to you this morning under the theme, Jesus must be in his father's house. First, to his parents' distress, and second, by his father's decree. Jesus must be in his father's house. To his parents' distress, by his father's decree. There are so many things we'd like to know about Jesus uh, as a child. What kind of boy was he? What was it like for Mary and Joseph and his siblings to have a child in the house who was always perfectly obedient? What was their home life like as a family? Did Jesus, in fact, have to work with his father in the, in the carpenter shop? It's what we all assume, but the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. When his father died as the oldest son, did Jesus have the obligation to take over as breadwinner for the family of Joseph and Mary? Again, we don't know the answers to those questions, but this is the only story we have about anything that ever happened in Jesus' growing up years. Some people think that this trip to Jerusalem was the first time that Jesus made the journey. And then he went along on this occasion because he was 12 years old and because he'd become, as they would say, bar mitzvah. He'd become a son of the commandment. It's kind of like our public profession of faith. And that has been the custom among the Jews for many hundreds of years that when a, a, a boy becomes bar mitzvah, when he becomes a, a son of the commandments, he is allowed, he is called then, expected then, to go to Jerusalem, at least in, in those days, to participate in the Passover. But there's no evidence really from that time to say that's what also happened in the case of the Lord Jesus. As a devout man, Joseph... And Mary, we read, would have gone every year to Jerusalem as the Lord commanded. And when we read in verse 44 that Jesus' parents, not knowing where he was or not noticing him anywhere in the crowd, assumed he was with someone who had come in the group to Jerusalem with them. They looked for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and we get the impression that the whole family would have traveled to Jerusalem. This was possible, maybe even likely, this was not the first time that Jesus made the trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. Again, we say Jesus' development was, is a kind of a secret to us. What I mean now is not to say what kinds of things happened to him, but when did he come to understand who he was? When did he realize, how old was he when he realized what he had come to do? Of course, it's really impossible for us to understand exactly how that went. In our minds, we kind of project onto it. He was the Son of God. So, of course, he always knew who he was and what he had come to do. He knew that, basically, we would kind of assume from his birth. But Luke says in verse 40, this was a process. Jesus didn't only grow physically, as every child does. He also grew in wisdom. And we read those words, we read over those words, we, we, we read right past them. What does that actually mean? Do we, do we really think about the Lord Jesus growing in wisdom, becoming more wise, more understanding as he grows older? It's not really how we think of Jesus. We can't understand why the Son of God would have to grow in wisdom. 
But that's what Luke says. And on the one hand, he describes Jesus here clearly as the boy Jesus. On the other hand, by the time he's 12 years old, he, pro- he clearly, I should say, had a very clear understanding, a, a good understanding of who he was and what he had come to do. Luke doesn't say anything about what Jesus saw, what Jesus did during the feast. Doesn't say anything about the impression that the ceremonies of the Passover might have made on him. But again, when you think about it, you reflect on what it would have been like for the Lord Jesus to go there, a young man knowing who he was, knowing what he had come to do. It must have been a remarkable experience for him to go to the temple and see those lambs who were pictures of him, those lambs being slaughtered and their blood being used and and, uh, the sacrifices being offered there. Knowing this is a picture, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen to him. A picture and a promise of his death on the cross. But when the feast was ended, we read, as his parents and the rest of his family were returning to Nazareth, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He didn't tell his parents he was going to do that, so they didn't know that he'd stayed behind. But they weren't too concerned, apparently, when they didn't see him at first. They just assumed he was somewhere with the group. But after they'd been on the way for a whole day, still hadn't seen him. He hadn't shown up, you might say, when it was time to eat. Didn't see him anywhere. That's when they started to worry what might have become of him. That's when they began to search among their relatives and their acquaintances, probably other people from the town of Nazareth, but they couldn't find him anywhere. And so they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. Again, Luke doesn't give us any details about what Mary and Joseph might have been thinking, might have been worrying about, uh, could have happened to their son, or where they all went in Jerusalem to try to find him. In a way, we would say no father or mother needs Luke to tell them what Mary and Joseph would have been worried about, what they would have been going through. Jesus, of course, was not an infant, wasn't a, a toddler at this time. He was 12 years old. But Jerusalem was big, and Jesus was still a boy. There were all kinds of people who would travel to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover, not all of them with good intentions. Some had come to to pick pockets and to take advantage of people and so on and so forth. And they must have begun to imagine the very same way we begin to imagine. What could have happened to one of our children when we lose sight of a child in a crowd someplace, at a parade, or or at some sporting event, or in a shopping mall? We imagine the worst, and no doubt Mary and Joseph would have done that too. It must have been agony for them. Luke says it wasn't until the third day that they found him. It seems like what he intends to say is that there was that day's journey out of the city, the day's journey back to the city, and then a day of searching throughout the city until they found him. And they found him in the temple. He was sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them, and he was asking them questions. And all the places they might have expected or thought or imagined they would have found Jesus Of all the things they they might have thought they would find their 12-year-old son doing in Jerusalem, 
they clearly had not expected to find him there in the temple. In that area where the rabbis would sit together as the Bible scholars and they would sit and they would teach and they would discuss and they would debate. And that they would find their son Jesus the center of attention there. Now we think about that conversation, the questions, the teaching going on. It would be really nice for us to know what sorts of theological topics they, they discussed, what sorts of Bible passages they maybe argued about there. We'd love to have a picture even of how they stood together and, and how the whole thing went. Was Jesus the 12-year-old boy the one who was actually doing the teaching? It's what some commentators suggest. Again, Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe it's something we'd like to think, that Jesus was doing the teaching here. Then that would be a little bit like one of those stories that the, the Greeks would write about their heroes. The amazing things they did when they were just children. Luke does say that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. That might mean that they were amazed at the way he responded to things that the, the rabbi said, the kinds of questions he asked them. You shouldn't think that Jesus was kind of showing off to these rabbis, how smart he actually was, how much he actually knew and understood about the Bible. You shouldn't imagine Jesus here kind of doing theological tricks to show he really knew, he understood more than even these rabbis did. People were amazed at what they heard and what they saw. We take nothing away from that. But it doesn't say here that Jesus, the 12-year-old, was teaching the rabbis. To the people who heard him as a 12-year-old boy, it was amazing that he could follow the discussion. He could understand what the rabbi is saying, these scholars. He could ask them intelligent and insightful questions. Well, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Luke says literally they were struck with a shock. They were struck as, as, as if with a physical blow. They were astonished as parents that their 12-year-old son had dared, you might say, to stay behind in Jerusalem without asking permission, without telling them what he was planning to do. They were astonished at where they finally found him involved in this discussion with the rabbis. They were astonished because they had never seen their Jesus this way. For them, you might say, this was a different Jesus. A different Jesus than the Jesus they knew as a boy at home. It's a curious thing that happens. I might say, unfortunately, very typical, curious, but typical when parents are afraid they've lost one of their children. They're frantically looking, searching for a child. They finally find a child. Mary responds in one way, we would say it's a strange, it's a curious way she responds. On the other hand, as parents who have had any kind of experience like this, we're not surprised. Can identify with the way Mary spoke to Jesus when they finally found him. You might think, you're looking for your 12-year-old son, you're worried about your 12-year-old son. He's, he's maybe caught up somewhere in the great crowd, maybe bad things have happened to him. You finally find him, he's safe and sound, he's in the temple. 
You might expect maybe that a mother would, would run to her son and embrace him. Say, Jesus, we're so happy that we found you, that you're safe and sound. But she was angry at him. Again, I think parents can relate to that. We tend to, in our shock, in our surprise, we tend to, to be kind of angry that our child has, has let go of our hand. Our child has, has been drawn away by the crowd. The child went somewhere on his or her own. Son, she says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And in a way, as I say, we can understand that reaction. And maybe we should say, so can Luke understand it. You, you pay attention to the way Luke speaks about Jesus throughout this passage. We mentioned already he calls him the boy Jesus. The boy Jesus. He keeps pointing out again and again, referring to Mary and Joseph as his parents. And, and that creates a, a, a picture and understanding for us of how they looked at Jesus and how Jesus would have looked to us, you might say. That he could have been expected to be with the family. He should have stayed with the group. He belonged with those people who had traveled from Nazareth and were on their way home. He was their boy. He belonged to their family. He should have been with them. Luke calls Mary his mother. Mary puts a very heavy emphasis on who Jesus is for them. Son, why did you do that to us? Your father and I have been searching for you. And we understand that we don't fault Mary for any of that kind of that thinking, that attitude, those words. But just the same, Mary doesn't seem to realize this is what it is to be the mother of the Christ. This is what Simeon had exactly said to her. This is what he was talking about when they met him in the temple area after they presented Jesus as a little baby. He said to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul. And so what we see here is the beginning of Mary's suffering as the mother of the Christ. Somehow she had forgotten that. Somehow she had kind of lost track of that. In the 12 years that had passed since Gabriel the angel had come to her, since Jesus had been born, since Simeon had prophesied about who Jesus was, as the family lived their otherwise normal life there in Nazareth, they, they followed all the routines of family life. And Mary had forgotten her boy didn't belong to her the way every other child belonged to his or her parents and families. Gabriel said, he shall be called holy, the Son of God. She had been told, he belongs to God. Simeon said, he is the salvation of God. He thanked God. He said, now let me depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation when he saw Jesus. Simeon said, this little boy has come to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to Israel. So Jesus asks them, this 12-year-old boy asks his mother, don't you remember 
Didn't you know I must be in my Father's house? Why are you looking for me? Pay attention to that first question. Why were you looking for me? Well, the answer to us is perfectly obvious why they were looking for him. They were his parents. He was their 12-year-old son. They didn't know where he was. Of course they looked for him. What else would would a 12-year-old boy's parents do? But Jesus, of course, is not asking for information. This question is rhetorical. This question is, is asked because the answer is so clear, and Mary should have known it. Jesus says, you shouldn't have been looking for me. Not because, you know, I'm 12 years old now, and I can look after myself. Not because, don't you remember, I'm the Son of God. I don't need you to take care of me. You shouldn't have been looking for me because you know who I am. You know who I am for God. You know who I am for His people. You know, Mary, why I came into this world. You know that I have a mission. I have work to do for my Father. Didn't you know? And again, that means, of course, you did know, you do know, that I must be in my Father's house. Now we notice how Jesus speaks. We notice what he makes clear. There is some discussion about what his exact words might have been. Bottom of the page of your Bible, a little footnote tells us you could translate those words a little bit differently. Instead of saying, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? It could say, you could also translate, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And the reason why there are these two different ways of translating Jesus' words is because he doesn't actually say, my father's house. He doesn't say, my father's business. Very literally, Jesus says, I must be in the blank of my father. And the most straightforward way of of translating Jesus' words is probably, didn't you know I must be in the things of my Father? And the commentators explain why, you know, the one says it should say the word house, the other said no, should say the word business, put those words in that blank. But whichever option we choose, Jesus' point is perfectly clear. He has come to do work for his Father. And as far as that goes, it doesn't make any difference whether you put in there in my father's house or you put in there in my father's uh, uh, business. Because the father's business is everything that happens in his father's house. It's what his father's house is all about, the business of the father. And so that's the question. What is the business of the father? What is God doing in this world? God is busy in this world saving His elect through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is busy in this world through His Son, Jesus Christ, gathering and defending and preserving His congregation for eternal life. God is busy glorifying His name by forgiving sinners in Christ, by turning His enemies into His children, into His sons. God is busy reconciling the world to himself and not counting men's trespasses against them because of Jesus Christ. And that work of God was the reason for everything God did 
in the temple, in his house in Jerusalem. The sacrifices and the blood that was poured out on the altar to atone for the people's sin. The worship of the people through the ceremonies and the sacrifices. The celebration of God's acts of salvation in the feasts. The instruction in the law that happened there in his house, in his temple. The blessings that were pronounced on the people by the priests after atonement had been made. The temple was that place in the world where heaven and earth met, you could say. That temple was the place in the world where God and his people met together. And prophetically, in terms of shadows, we can say they met together in Jesus Christ. That's the the business of the Father that he is always doing, or was always doing, in his house. We also have to recognize this this word of Jesus to his parents is a word of correction. Because they only see him as their boy. They only see him as their son. And they, they see him in such a way that his identity, his place in the world is tied up in their relationship to him and the fact they belong to, that he belongs to them. That they are his father and his mother. And Jesus says to them, and these words must have cut them like a knife. Didn't you know, mother and father, I must be in my father's house? It's not that for Jesus there's a conflict or a contest between who his real father or real parents are. Uh, Does he belong to God? Yes. Does he belong to them? Yes. Not either or. We read in verse 51 that uh, at the end of all this, Jesus went down with them, came to Nazareth, was submissive to them. Jesus lived as a faithful and obedient son of his father and mother. But he does that, the Holy Spirit wants to say, he does that in the context of his relationship to his father in heaven in the context of his identity as the Son of God. He submitted to them as part of his submission to his Father in heaven. He asked them, didn't you know I must be in my Father's house? And that is a theme, that is a motif that runs throughout this whole Gospel of Luke. Where Jesus will speak about doing something, having to do something that must be done. He must do. It's necessary for him to do. In Luke 4, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. It's a consciousness of having been sent. Why he is here? In Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. In Luke 13, not speaking about something uh, that he had to do, that had happened to him, but something that was nonetheless necessary. Ought not, is it not necessary that this woman, when he healed a woman, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, was it not necessary, must it not be so, that she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Luke 17, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected 
by this generation. Luke 22, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Luke 24, this is the story of the whole Bible. Jesus says, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Now Luke says, Mary and Joseph didn't get it. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It doesn't say they didn't remember all of a sudden what Gabriel said to them. They didn't remember all of a sudden what Simeon had said about their son. It says they didn't understand. They couldn't, they couldn't comprehend what their son was saying to them. And again, you find the same reaction among the disciples. When Jesus said, this is what I must do. I must suffer. I must die. All these things must be fulfilled about me. This is what I came for. This is my Father's decree. This is my Father's will. This is my Father's business. Jesus has to say this again and again and again to the people who loved him the people who followed him, to the people who believed in him, because this is the gospel. And it's a mystery, can't be understood by the human heart or mind. But even though this means that a sword will pierce through your soul, this is Good news I have for you, Mary. And this is good news that we hear from the 12-year-old Jesus. It was his father's will. It was his father's business to save his people by sending his son, born of woman, born under the law, so that by his death on the cross, he might redeem those who were under the law. And already, as a 12-year-old boy, we're amazed not only that Jesus knew he was the Son of God. We're not just amazed that he knew already he had come to fulfill the Word of God. That he, come, he had come to die for sinners. That that's what his Father had decreed and decided. That's not all that amazes us. What amazes us, what comforts us, what brings us joy is to hear Jesus commit himself to it. Give himself to it. It's not just my Father's will, says Jesus, but it's my will. It's my intention to do everything my Father sent me to do. It is my will to fulfill those pictures of my death in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It is my will, my intention to lay down my life for the sheep. I have come, Jesus is saying to Mary, uh, uh, Jesus is saying also to us, 
I have come to be the Lamb of God who with his life, with his blood, takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, on the one hand, what we have read and heard about this morning is familiar to us. None of us was surprised at what we read. Maybe none of us was surprised at anything that we heard. And yet, Father, to have this message proclaimed again to us, to be invited, to be called, to be commanded, to look at the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in your word, as the Spirit holds him out to us, as the Spirit tells us, this is something you need to know about Jesus. That he confessed that he had come to be in his Father's business, that he belonged in his Father's house, that the business of the Father, the business of salvation, to the glory of God, the salvation of sinners, is Jesus' business in our lives. Father, we thank you. We are sinners. And as we have confessed, and as we have known We stand before you guilty in ourselves. We stand before you weak when it comes to the battle against our sin. We stand before you vulnerable and prone to stumble again and again. And to hear that this is the commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, to us is indeed a great comfort. Father, help us to take refuge in the life and the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.